revolutionary violence and terror, at least in and of itself, is not a virtue. Radicalism is not measured by how many people you kill. Radicalism is to grasp the root of the matter and to understand what needs to be done to fix the world as it is. It's not about how many people you can put into the gulags. And that sounds obvious, I suppose, to us, but it's, again, it's posturing. It's it's about what feels the most extreme, which feels justified when the current order is so absolutely thoroughly shit. And that's one of my favorite highlights of an interview that is featured in this week's episode of Radio Free Humanity. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we interview Logan and James, two young people who narrowly escaped the quagmire of neo-Stalinism. They join us today to talk about the phenomenon of tankyism, of Stalinism, amongst the internet left, and how their discovery of Marxist humanism led them to come to their senses. To hear more episodes, read about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on our website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views and opinions expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the positions and views of MHI. In a moment, we will begin a fascinating interview about tankyism and young people today. But first, we're going to take a few moments, as we do in every podcast, to talk about some current events. We are recording this current events section on Wednesday, March 11th. That's the day after Super Tuesday 2, or Mini Tuesday, as people have called it. A few weeks ago, Joe Biden's campaign was presumed dead, and now he is the presumed winner of the Democratic primary. So we're going to be talking about that, what that means for the Sandernistas. And we're also going to be talking about the uh, coronavirus, because that is what everyone's talking about right now. So, Andrew, were you surprised by this turn of events, by Biden's uh, big turnaround? Uh, Yes. You may remember about a month ago, I was like really kind of despondent and worried. I said, you know, the black people are at the core of the the Democratic Party base. Uh, And in the first couple of primaries in particular, well, the caucus in in Iowa and then the New Hampshire primary, you know, you got two like really, really white States and then Nevada, you got got Latinos, but not that many black people. And I was afraid that like a few weeks into the process, it would all be over. You know, I mean, Biden was really on the ropes. He, he, he had like no money. He wasn't putting out ads or anything like that. And you had a very divided field. And, and this is before you got South Carolina, where you had, you know, a large number of black people. So I was just like the way they designed the primaries might be such that like black people don't get a chance to express themselves. You know, it's all over before they do. Uh, and it was almost all over. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the South Carolina uh, debate happens. Uh, Jim Clyburn then endorses Biden. Then you've got on what Saturday, week and a half 
half ago, you got the, the South Carolina primary. Biden wins in this overwhelming victory. And within within a, a couple of days, you know, you got Klobuchar dropout, you got Buttigieg dropout, you got, uh, I don't know, Mickey Mouse drops out, you know, and then, then he wins big. Biden does in Super Tuesday, especially in the South, you know, especially among black people. And then Bloomberg drops out. And then, then basically it's all over. So, you know, it's it's kind of what I expected to happen in South Carolina, but I didn't expect it to have such big effects because I didn't I, I didn't I didn't think that the effect of South Carolina would would be able to register because there wasn't enough time, or that it might have been too late. So that's what surprised me. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised too, and I was also really relieved because I like I think a lot of people. We're really worried that the Dems were not going to pull their shit together. We're not going to consolidate around a candidate who actually could beat Donald Trump. Um, I was really worried that Sanders was going to win the nomination and that the sort of politics that might have given him some strength in the primaries would not translate into general election politics, that he would actually be a very vulnerable and weak candidate, and that the Sandernistas would have blown all their energy fighting for causes that actually just led to... um, uh, the the re-election of Donald Trump and the downfall of civilization. You know, the, the whole the argument that they were making regarding the general election electability of Sanders uh, was that, you know, Bernie is, is just like this, you know, transformational candidate and we're going to bring to the polls all of these disaffected people who never vote, totally energize young uh, people, and that will make up for whatever, you know, never Trump votes we, we lose and and, you know, right-wing Democratic votes we lose will more than make up for in terms of this new voting population and energy among young people. What the, 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 this set of primaries uh, thus far has shown is it's just not happening. Um, even in the Democratic primaries, Bernie Sanders is not drawing, you know, massive numbers of new voters, massive numbers of, of young people. He's doing very well percentage-wise, but in terms of turnout, the, the numbers just aren't there. Uh, and the other, the other thing that I didn't realize, uh, you know, you were saying a moment ago about a very divided Democratic field, this and that and the other thing, is that the Sanders campaign, their whole strategy from the get-go has been that he can win in a very divided field. You know, they they were thinking they were thinking, you know, if we get ourselves 30% of the vote, we can win with it. we have a plurality going into the convention and then God knows what happens, we're well organized, you know, we can win that way. 30% win it if the other, you know, 70% is divided among four or five candidates. If it's divided among one candidate, <laughs> you know, you lose. So, so that so that that consolidation is the you know, the fact that, like, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Bloomberg, the fact that they all, like, dropped out, uh, that's really, that. that's what put the uh, the icing on the, the feel the burn cake. And that's, and that's what they're upset about. You know, you, you, you listen to, to the complaints. That's what they regard as, like, the, the conspiracy or something. I mean, you know, there was no, you know, Russia conspiracy with, 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 with Trump, a lot of those kinds of people say, not Bernie himself. You know, but this is a, this is a conspiracy when Klobuchar and, uh, and, and Buttigieg and, and all, they, 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 they drop out. Yeah, there's a lot of blame being flung around by the Sanders crowd, and I hope at some point that all those excuses will become increasingly untenable 
and the sort of the, the this blame game. All the black neoliberal shows in in South Carolina and Mississippi and Alabama and Tennessee. Yeah. Right, right. The vast establishment conspiracy that is black voters in this country. Um, yeah, these cons- these excuses are going to become increasingly transparent. And if the Sanders crowd wants to be serious about their politics, they're going to have to do some real rethinking about some of the assumptions behind their strategies and not just say, oh, don't mourn, organize, and let's just do it again, or the next time we'll win. Yeah, well, that's the question I've been mulling over. Right. Like, is there a future for them after Bernie? How, how much seriousness is, is, is there to this? Yeah. I'm not real optimistic. You know, I've been around a long time, and I see, you know, what happens. And, and, and basically, people become disillusioned, and they, 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 they drop out, or they, you know, make peace with the, the powers that be. Um, I mean, that's that's the real shame is drawing people, you know, on really flimsy bases, thinking that they can score, you know, quick victories and, you know, make the revolution in a couple of weeks. And then when it doesn't work out, you, you know, you just get this this revolving door and it happens again and again and again. Yeah, I think that's a really useful insight, Andrew. I also hope that these this sort of anti-Biden Sandernista crowd that's been spreading around all this um, you know, these critiques of Biden online, uh, whether it be like, you know, videos they dragged up from years ago or gaffes he made and, you know, complaining and calling him a racist and all these things. I hope that um, they can start to realize that now that we're transitioning to the general election, that that repeating those kind of things without any kind of perspective, uh, like, you know, okay, yes, we agree Biden has problems, but defeating Trump is is the bigger goal. And if we can't, don't defeat Trump. This is the end of the line for human civilization. Without those kind of perspectives, um, they're just contributing to the Trump disinformation ecosystem. That doesn't mean it's wrong to criticize Biden or to you know understand his candidacy with nuance, but it has to be put in its proper perspective in terms of the danger that we are in as a civilization. But Biden's a very problematic character. He's got to be watched. He's got to be more than watched. He can't be trusted. But we have to prioritize the human civilization, which is being, you know, immediately and direly threatened by Trump and the Trumpites. So, so let me say it. Yeah, so we should say that. But I think, you know, when people post things on social media... That is a different type of thing than making just this short, nuanced statement that we just made. You could, because when you post a video of something Biden said, and even if you write below the video, like, well, I think Biden's problematic for all of these reasons, but I do think we should, you know, prioritize the fight against Trump. Well, someone else is going to just share that video without your comment. And now you have, like, contributed to the virality of of propaganda that's serving Trump's and Putin's purposes. So I, you know, I, and I feel like in the past couple of weeks, I've seen such a flurry of anti-Biden propaganda being spread amongst Bernie people on social media. And without sort of, I think, under realizing that, you know, after March 10th, the game is totally different now, and they've been contributing to a narrative that they're going to have to now fight against if they want to get rid of Trump. 
Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing is how much do they really care about it versus how much do they think bringing down the Democratic Party establishment is the main goal, you know, which, which we've talked about. I mean, they've had four years to reflect on 2016. And I haven't seen among a lot of people a lot of reflection yet. I mean, how much more do you have to reflect on the, the impact of your, your statements and your actions and your inactions? Well, we were going to be talking about the coronavirus in the second half of this current event section and about the Trump administration's criminally negligent response to it, but we have run out of time, but I'm sure we will be revisiting that topic in future podcasts, as unfortunately it is not going away. Our guests on this episode are Logan and James. Logan is 20 years old. He's a former affiliate of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. That's a hardcore Stalinist organization. Uh, James is 17. Uh, he had what he describes as a light, tanky phase uh, in, for a while in high school. Uh, both Logan and James have become disillusioned with those sort of tanky Stalinist politics and have become attracted to Marxist humanism. And that's why we asked them on the show today. Logan and James, thank you for being with us today on Radio Free Humanity. Yeah, of course. Pleasure's mine. Yep, thanks for having us. We have more people than usual on the podcast today. In addition to James and Logan, we are joined by my co-host, Andrew Kleiman, as well as Andrew Clard. Andrew Clard is Organizational Secretary for Marxist Humanist Initiative. You will recognize her voice as the person who reads our Who We Are statement in every episode. And also, a few episodes back... She was our special guest on the episode entitled The Tanky Craze, where she talked about the phenomenon of Stalinism in youth today. Um, James and Logan are two of the people that she originally sort of interviewed and learned about this phenomenon from, and that's uh, how they came to be our guest today on Radio Free Humanity. I want to start off first by just figuring out what the path into tankyism was for both of you. James, do you want to start? Well, my political journey... I would say started in the eighth grade or around my freshman year in high school. And I essentially started out as your standard Bernie Krat and Bernie Sanders supporter, just a moderate social Democrat. I wasn't very well read into, you know, the political situation at the time, obviously, but that's kind of where my leftism kicked off. And then over time, I slowly shifted more to the left. I eventually became a more solid leftist and I had some libertarian socialist sympathies and then eventually i came towards the dreaded tanky light phase as i would like to call it um i was never a full-blown stalinist i would never go like oh stalin never did anything wrong i wasn't that deep into it but i was very apologetic towards the movement and i would say things like oh fidel castro was a great person and oh like such and such was a hero and oh these regimes weren't all so bad and i was okay can can i slow you down a little bit what made you even find out about tankyism and stalinism well at first i had this friend who uh, who drifted into that and actually you know went all the way and then from there i and through that connection um and when i was exposed to other people through social media i kind of became more comfortable with it and kind of saw it as something normal and something that could be an acceptable political position and then i would listen largely to their reasoning and i would for some reason it would seem 
fine to me, especially when I already had some sort of history in being a leftist and I was already comfortable with the idea of capitalism is flawed and we need an alternative. And I just started looking towards their fetishization of all these regimes and their and their like romanticizing all these people, especially who are really horrible figures. And I kind of saw this as something that, oh, this is a potential alternative that I can look into. And did, did all this happen on the internet? It, it did mostly happen on the internet. Um, I didn't really actually start to read into Marx's works and, you know, fully immerse myself in it and try to understand what he meant and what his philosophy of revolution really stood for uh, until I became disillusioned with the Stalinist phenomenon and became disillusioned with all of that, which I'd say happened about a year and a half ago. So before that, that was what you knew to be leftism, was what you heard on the on the tanky podcasts and things? Essentially, yeah. So I'm going to move to Logan and hear his story as well here. So Logan, you are 20 and you are a former affiliate of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, correct? Yes, yes. So how did you first get in, you know, sort of introduced to those kind of politics? I got introduced initially by a friend that I had. I remember that he uh, told me that he was a socialist and he knew that I at the time was already relatively left wing amongst our friend group, not yet identifying as a socialist or anything, but I was very vocally liberal. And so I guess he felt comfortable talking about that with me. And around this time, I started becoming disillusioned more in general with uh, capitalism and the capitalist political machine to the point to where I was losing faith in liberalism as a method to solve the issues that I solved in the war or saw in the world. And so my friend coming along and presenting socialism as he understood it to me as an opportunity, as a real option, uh, was very appealing to me. That's when I started going down the internet rabbit hole of the first thing I did was I read The Principles of Communism by Ingalls, and it went downhill from there when I made uh, contacts with people I met on Instagram, I believe, and I was recommended reading Stalin's Dialectical and Historical Materialism and that sort of writing. And that's that's what sent me down that route for a good number of years, unfortunately. So you both got like an inkling that socialist politics or anti-capitalist politics were something that might be appealing to you and you went online to learn more and you sort of fell down this Stalinist rabbit hole. So I'm, you know, I, I'm not aware of that sort of universe of the Stalinist internet. I don't, I, I don't interface with those things. So it's all new to me. like a lot of internet subcultures are, but when you were, like, you know, looking for uh, political, uh, you know, identities, did, were there other tendencies and philosophies that also presented themselves to, to you that you weighed against Stalinism or like, you know, how, why was Stalinism the thing that, that attracted you? For me personally, at the same time, when I started to cozy up to tankyism and to the Stalinist phenomenon, I was... There were also libertarian socialist tendencies that I kind of was attracted to. And like at the time, I started reading Noam Chomsky, for instance, and who he himself hasn't really taken 
a hugely hard stance against many of these regimes, such as, you know, Cuba. So it really did seem normal to me in something that, oh, these can coexist, and oh, these aren't too contradictory. So I was able to be more comfortable with the with the Stalinist phenomenon, and I was too. I was also recommended like some Stalinist works or whatnot, and some by Mao. And I kind of just saw it as, oh, okay, well, this makes sense. And That's really interesting to me that you perceive Stalinism as coexisting within like a big tent of anti-capitalist politics. And so that even if you were reading, say, like some anarchists, you didn't see that like anarchist politics as being um, like negating the sort of state capitalist Stalinist politics. Well, initially, yes, and I think it was the reason, it, it was really why I understood it. It was, it was because I saw them both as an opposition to what currently existed and an opposition to the current capitalist framework that our world is in. And I grasped that, not what they were preaching, but that opposition itself as a matter of importance. And that was what made the position appealing to me. I didn't grasp I didn't really read into their philosophy of revolution as much as I should have, but I essentially saw it as an alternative, or like as some sort of opposition that could lead to a better something, even though their philosophy of revolution was totally flawed and they failed to have any comprehensive framework. I just saw that opposition as being something very important. Right, right. But now, Logan, you were actually pretty close to becoming an affiliate or member or, you know, organizationally involved with uh, the PSL, which is a serious Stalinist organization. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, did you have other groups you considered maybe joining? Like, yes. how did the PSL win out over, you know, Socialist Alternative or the ISO or DSA or... You know, Marxist. You know how. You know what. What? How did that become the 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 attraction? Well, what initially happened is the two organizations that I considered joining were the uh, DSA, the specifically the youth ver, uh, branch of the DSA that was active at my college, and the PSL. And the reason those two stuck out to me were one, simply that the uh, DSA was active locally. And the PSL was not um, established there. And so that's the big reason why the uh, DSA stood out to me. But the thing about the PSL and Stalinism in general is that it did strike me as being the most radical option available to me, simply because the posturing that they took and the positions that they took were so ludicrous on their face value that to someone like me who was rejecting the norm, the current order, the uh, the established doctrines of the capitalist order, to say that you're a Stalinist is like, oh, that's the opposite of everything that I've known. Therefore, if I'm no longer a capitalist, I'm a Stalinist. And the thing about the socialist alternative and those groups, not to like, to beat around the bush about it, just to be very direct, they very much, and they still do to a large extent, strike me as functionally liberal. Uh, you, I believe, actually wrote an article about how the socialist alternative was backing Bernie Sanders, and despite behind closed doors discussing how they knew that his version of socialism was not socialism as Marxists understand it, still supporting him and blurring the lines between the two for optics sake. 
And that immediately stuck out to me as being bullshit, frankly. Um, and the thing about the Stalinists is that they were so upfront about their beliefs and they were so firm. And yeah, I support Stalin. He was a hero. It was just like, it's so catches you off guard that it, at least in my position, when you're kind of open to that idea, it's alluring. It's appealing. There's no there, there's no fooling around there. They are very direct about what they believe. And in a way, I, I, I to this day, uh, respect that in a sense. They're dumb as hell and what their, their positions are deeply immoral. But at least they don't play around with it like a lot of other groups do. For example, the YDSA. My local YSDA, YDSA, excuse me, branch was led by a self-described Maoist. But he worked with the DSA because it's it, it's what was there, the, the 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 structures there. We can work with them, and it's just just like if you have to, it, it, it's so silly to take this radical position. I'm a socialist, and then not own that essentially. And that bothers me. But uh, um. James kind of talked about this really quick, and I, I was I want to talk about it while while you brought it up about how if there was like um reading it alongside Chomsky and opening yourself up to Stalinism along with all of these things the uh, sort of like uh, community that I joined back in 2016 um, as absurd as it kind of sounds was the Instagram political community which is a thing that exists for some reason. But at the time, there was absolutely no people were at the especially because this was right around the time that Bernie Sanders started um, uh, his campaign. People were still definitely feeling out what socialism was to them. And so people were promoting a panacoic at the same time that they were recommending you read Inverhoja. Like, and especially as someone who didn't know better, the lines between these groups of people didn't exist. You could pick up uh, Kropotkin one day, be happy with it, and then go read Althusser the next. Like, and it's absurd, obviously, but these are kids on their own who have no have essentially educated or well-informed voices to point out the nonsense. It's a very isolated uh, community that still exists, um, uh, especially on Twitter nowadays, and are they are they mostly kids? So you think, or you maybe you do no um, way of knowing? Yes, for sure. Um, I actually have a um, friend uh, named Lily on Twitter who's sixteen, and she um, asks her followers and everything like, uh, "How old is everyone?" And it's all of these big names that I recognize from Twitter. All these popular accounts. Everyone's a teenager. Every single one. Huh. I, I think there like are two people in their twenties here, and that's it. Huh. Um. It's absurd, yeah. Can I um, try to interject something that, um, this is Andrew, yeah. that really struck me? On the one hand, Logan, you were saying that, if I understood you, when you met the, the PSL, the Marciates, they struck you as what they were saying was ludicrous. But that's what made it attractive. Am, am I right about that? Yes, honestly, yeah. yes. Okay, so so this is a question that I have. Like, did you say, let me just adopt the posture of being out there and extreme and ludicrous? Or did you say, no, I really believe this, or let me try to believe it? So I'm, 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 what I'm trying to get at is the difference between believing in the truth of some propositions, you know, like 
Stalin, you know, was was a Democrat uh, versus believing in a cause. I'm wondering whether you can um, kind of speak to that issue. For me, the issue whenever I got into politics are the two issues were the Iraq war and the 2008 recession. Those were the two things that for me formed the framework of my politics. And so for me, everything came down to there's a recession, capitalism is unstable and unfit for humanity, and it promotes imperialism in the form of the Iraq war, which we should oppose. And that's, I think, what inadvertently opened me up to Stalinism, in that for me, this opposition to imperialism made me incredibly open to the idea that like the US narratives, the mainstream narrative about things isn't just wrong or biased, but is propaganda that is intentionally either distorted or outright fabricated. For me personally, uh, I kind of had the same thing, except it wasn't the recession or the beginning or the uh, Iraq war that kind of tipped me off. It was around 2016 or 2015, and that was when Bernie Sanders started his campaign, and that idea of a social democracy came back into the limelight of the uh, of the political realm in the U.S. And many young people, of course, they were and still are very enthused by that. And from there, I kind of saw him as just something different, you know, just some an idea of change that could like be applied and something that seemed to me practical and very almost radical and then over time i slowly when i was kind of introduced to some other tendencies or other ideas and other people i was kind of began to think oh this isn't really radical therefore it's not good but i and then i saw as instead though like anarchism or stalinism as being oh this is radical it may be violent but it's opposing something and oh they're anti-imperialist whereas the u.s has been imperial is imperialist and whatnot and i kind of saw that that was kind of the thing i could cling on to and go like oh it's a radical op- opposition to the current state of things. Can I just dig a little bit deeper here? I understand, you know, uh, how and why you were radicalized, but the question of why you were attracted to Stalinism at that moment is still eludes me because there are a lot of other forms of, of radicalism out there. Some of them you dipped into uh, why did this seem the most radical? Just because it was so opposed to the U.S., the U.S. had been so opposed to it? Or w- why dig up a long-dead <laughs> political regime to admire mm-hmm. at that point? And why think? Uh, why stop your search? I mean, you didn't, thank goodness. But at that time, you, you just got sucked into that without questioning it. Well, there were, for me personally, there were a, there were actually several reasons. I mean, for one, it seemed that obviously it'll, after the whole Cold War, we've always been taught, oh, communism has killed millions of people, oh, these regimes were bad, and which obviously that is completely correct. But at the time, because it seemed to be the most radically opposed to liberalism and, you know, and the current for capitalist framework, it struck me as, oh, okay, this is good, like, okay, they might be authoritarian, but they did stuff. And then another thing which I think was important in my development was, I I think that, and I think many leftists, and especially tankies, kind of take on the same framework and the same idea, is that a lot of them are very 
kind of insecure about their leftism because they come from a barrage of conservatives or even some internal self-doubt that, oh, well, if socialism is so, is so great, then why has it never worked? And you start going like, oh, well, maybe they're right. But then you, you start to be, for some reason, become more comfortable through this insecurity with the idea that with people like Michael Parenti saying, oh, well, it did work, actually. Look, uh, the USSR industrialized rapidly. They had literacy programs and healthcare programs, so they did a great job. And it kind of was a defense mechanism, almost. It was something that you could find comfort in with your leftist beliefs. It's something you could use. And that kind of state of comfort was kind of another thing that allowed you to be attracted to it because you would there a lot of these other leftists would go like oh well anarchism that didn't work out during the spanish revolution or oh like rojava isn't of an inherently socialist system so you know but Stalinists, i mean they made an industrial superpower and that was something you could backtrack into and with it becoming more popular amongst the youth and more people uh, expressing an interest in these regimes and these horrific people that they romanticized, it kind of just seemed normal. And when you were being exposed to it so much, it just seemed like, oh, okay, well, oh, the Soviet Union wasn't so bad. Look at these Soviet archives. And that's for, to you, just seemed rational for some reason, even though it clearly was a horrible position to take and totally just mind-numbingly stupid, to be frank. So so it was really that they were regimes that had had state power, even, even though they were over with and long dead and didn't make any kind of lasting socialism at all. Well, in um, all, it was just because it was so um, different from U.S. capitalism in, that you didn't look twice at, at its real nature. In all honesty, yes, that, that is actually why it's because and a lot of people especially those sympathetic to Stalinism will be like, oh, well, what have you guys done? We've built all these societies and started revolutions and, oh, we, what have you guys have done? Nothing. And then it kind of, that too, it's because like that idea of activity and just like even just you, you kind of began to also fetishize activity and revolution just for its own sake. Like, oh, they did something, so they must be correct. It, it was just the idea that they did something and that they were radical and opposed to the current state of things and the old order that it was so enthralling and just so, just so incredible to you. I've had a little bit of a different experience in that James was, as he describes it, a tanky light, whereas I was a full-blown Stalinist. <laughs> Which, ugh, do not like saying that out loud. I know, but... it hurts, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the thought process for me is I actually started out, before I was a tanky, as an anarchist for a very brief window of time. Um, that's where I went originally, because I read um, uh, excerpts of Orwell's Homage to Catalonia, and uh, I, I thought uh, the experiment there sounded great. It didn't work, but uh, that got blamed on the um, just anything, really. The Stalinists do the same thing, and I'll get there, is that it didn't work because XYZ, we just have to try it again, and it'll work this time. The thing is, though, is it got pointed out to me by the Stalinist, is that, yeah, it lasted for three years, but the Soviet Union lasted lasted for 70. And the thing is, I started out as an anarchist, so I had these concerns of democracy and freedom very abstractly, This, but still, I had this impulse of um, libertarianism in a way. And 
that's where I think we get to um, people like Parenti, who is definitely among the more credible figures in this movement, but more, far more insidious is people like Grover Fur, Austin Murphy, Stephen Goins, these people, who not only was the Soviet Union a net positive, but it actually was Democrat. It actually was free. It's it's the Western historical lies. They, they've distorted the truth. Um, the, um, uh, especially Fur has a surprisingly comprehensive um, web of nonsense to present this narrative that the real historians know this. Uh, one of his favorites is J. Arch Getty, who is a very well-respected, credible Soviet historian, and he'll take certain quotes or facts out of context about J. Arch Getty, hope you don't read him, and then presents him as a mainstream historian who is secretly a Stalinist or agrees with the Stalinist line. And that's what ended up getting me to convert to Stalinism was not only that it worked, but that according to these people who I had deluded myself into thinking were credible sources on the matter, it was it was as good as the propaganda said it was. Hey, Logan, I want to re-ask a question that Andrew asked a little bit earlier about sort of when you earlier said like the sort of audacity of the Stalinist position was attractive because it was almost like so punk rock or something. It was just so like um, blatantly contradictory to accepted truth that it was like, um, you know, so there was something striking about it, which would attract someone who was looking for that and, and those kind of that sort of almost performative politics. So there's that. But then you're also saying that, you know, you were attracted, you read Grover Fur and found his defense of Stalinism, like, believable, you know, not just that it was, it was like, um, um, audacious and shocking and like, titillating, but it was like, oh, this is, this is legit stuff. Like, maybe this actually is reality. This, this tanky's position is reality. So do you think you maybe, I mean, oscillated between me? And then, you know, Andrew was saying like, you know, do people really, do you and do, do other people really believe all these things or is it some of it just sort of, it, it doesn't all have to be true for it to be part of the, uh, because, because I believe in the cause or it doesn't yeah, all have so to be true because it's, in, yeah, it's believing in propositions versus believing in a cause. Right. Like I think a lot of people, they actually know that Bernie Sanders' plans don't all add up and there's no way to pay for them. But they're like, well, screw it. I believe in the cause of social democracy. So I'll sort of pretend to be for all these things. You know, I'll sort of defend right, yeah. these positions. But I actually know there's a lot of like fluff in there and it's not all it's not all legit economically. For me, it's kind of both or it was kind of both. I started out wanting to back the movement, the proposition, just the uh, the uh, the idea of it all. But personally, and this isn't true for everyone, but I think it is true for a significant portion. I then went to go find reasons to back myself. The um, the subreddit r slash communism has this giant master post list of sources that they claim debunk just about every single um, fact that we know about the Soviet Union, Red China, Cuba, all of these places. Um, and I don't think most people read them. I know I didn't read all of them. But it's the fact that these sources exist. It's, it's alluring. When This is a 
pages long document full of links to books and articles from supposedly non-Stalinist sources who couldn't deny the truth that Stalin was great. Um, like H.G. Wells um, was a somewhat admirer of Stalin. Stuff like that. People will latch on to that and be like, see, he wasn't even a Stalinist, but he met Stalin, he went to the Soviet Union, and he couldn't deny the truth. But people know the name H.G. Wells. They know he wrote books. He's a smart guy. And so it lends a credibility to it. And that's it's not, I, personally, I believed it, but I didn't go out of my way to make sure that my views were sound. I just went far enough to know that other people thought they were sound. I, I always have that thing too, where I second guess myself and I wanted to make sure that this reason was correct. And like, oh, okay, like, wait, are we sure? But everyone else is saying no to this. And then I would also just find the mere existence of a source and I would try to like read them, but I would also find the very existence of, you know, oppositional sources to be something that affirms them. Like, oh, like Dubois and like, oh, Paul Robeson, like they, they liked Stalin. So, oh, well, if these big, na big names did, then yeah, okay, it must be correct. And it gave you some sort of assurance that something out there existed that affirmed your beliefs and something that were people with people that were largely, you know, famous and out there. And that kind of that mere existence of them will kind of gave you some comfort and we're like, oh, okay, so it's not all that bad. It's just when you come up with and when you feed into that kind those kinds of huge lies and just the all of these things that are just so oppositional you you have to you you will always try to find some way to bend reality and to take whatever you can to go ahead and assure your delusion that's i th i think that's very interesting i'm glad you brought up that that aspect of of the belief it's almost like you need like permission to believe something um but you don't need to actually go through all the steps of verifying the truth for yourself you just need to know that someone else is giving you permission to believe it. I don't need to see the evidence. I just need to be told that someone else saw the evidence. Right, basically. yeah. That's very yeah, interesting. Exactly. Wasn't it also contributing to your being sucked into the rabbit hole that there didn't appear to be a lot of other alternatives because there's so much yes. Stalinism yeah. on the internet? Yeah. You've expressed to me previously that that's, that's basically all you can find when you start looking for socialism on the internet. And that seems to me uh, amazingly uh, dangerous, well, the whole internet is. But um, did either of you like try to look further than what seemed to be dominating the net, or you just assumed that that's what was socialism, because that's what was all over? For me, I, I did try to, at least initially, I tried to kind of look for other things, because I, I really couldn't get my... I tried very, very hard, but I, in the end, I couldn't fully get myself to believe in it. So I would explore it, but eventually I became comfortable cozying up to the idea of a regime that, oh, it's against the current order, so it's fine. And I eventually kind of warmed up to that, and by the time I was here, it was kind of... Yeah, the phenomenon of Stalinism was kind of amongst the youth on the internet, was kind of becoming the central... Um, idea and the central tendency amongst a very irrelevant group of teenagers. So, to, yeah, to, to be frank, and to me that made it, that was kind of the thing that affirmed it. And also the idea of they did stuff 
therefore they're correct, as opposed to anarchists uh, who have never done stuff, or the left communists who have, you know, oh, they have never done stuff either, or it just that that seemed very appealing to me just that they did stuff not even that what they did was good but they did stuff that was kind of what gave it away for me <laughs> um yeah for me um i was quickly locked into a framework of there are two sides there are the liberals and there are the marxists and the marxists supported the soviet union and if you don't support the soviet union you're a capitalist apologist or you buy into capitalist propaganda and once i was convinced that the western narrative about the soviet union was wrong i stopped caring about critical socialist voices because I was convinced that they were all just repeating the same lines as the mainstream anti-communist conservative historians and so why bother with them um and uh, you, uh and you said like did I ever go out of my way to like, find out about these uh, alternatives like I it, it cannot be emphasized enough how dominant Stalinists are online the only alternative that I was ever presented was anarchism. You go on YouTube, which for a lot of people is where we consume our information today. Whenever I was first political, I watched so many YouTube channels for my politics. And the first people you find if you type in, or if you look for Marxist YouTubers, uh, is people like Bad Mouse Productions, who is a Maoist with almost 100,000 subscribers now. You get people like the Finnish Bolshevik. You get people like Hakim. You can, I, I can sit here and name Stalinist YouTubers for so long. Jason Unruh, who's... Oh ugh. my god. He's actually the worst. Uh, I think even most Stalinists recognize that now, because the man is just objectively insane. <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, yeah, but if that's all you can find, then that's yeah. all you can find. Exactly. Right, that's exactly. Amazing. And that's yeah. what made it, like, it's normal to us. The non-Stalinist Marxist YouTubers, I'm going to name them. There's Muke, who has about 25,000 subscribers. He's a vague, non-affiliated left communist. He seems to like the, the council communist, but he doesn't seem to dedicate himself to any tendency. There's Maria, who has about 10,000 subscribers. She's a council communist. Um, uh, Yeah, that's those are the two that come to mind. I've looked. I just can't find anyone else. Brendan you are a shining light on YouTube, or you were. Your content is the only remotely competent Marxism on YouTube that I can find. And it's 10 years old. And that's, it's sad that in that time, no one else has come along to try and fill that void, but that's how it is. That's interesting, because I, I just don't pay any attention to YouTube and the, uh, what's happening on the left on YouTube. So I, ha I, I, I didn't even know that that was what the dominant trend on YouTube was. Stalinism and Maoism. <clears throat> so this is all news to me. Now, I, I have a, at some point we need to talk about, you know, your disillusionment with Stalinism and how you sort of came around the corner a little bit. Um, I, I I feel like I have so many follow-up questions just about the <laughs> the Stalinist thing. Uh, 
but I don't want to get distracted and never get to the other half of the questions. But I just have a couple I, I want to do, ask now before I forget. One is that I get the impression that for young people sort of coming online or being online and doing politics is that there is a pressure to immediately identify with a certain like political label or that, you know, attaches you to a tendency rather than saying mm-hmm. like, okay, I want to just go like read Marx or learn about the history of, you know, historical state capitalist communism or something. But like, oh, I need to immediately pick a label and they, you know, maybe you move from this to that, but you're, but there's this sense of like mm-hmm. personal, personal branding um, that is like an inherent part of, of, of the process. And I worry that the sort of culture of that, like personal political branding interferes with the process of like, of like responsible politicization, where you're coming to conclusions with an open mind rather than always sort of trying to defend a position or like make a position based on sort of social peer pressure and, and needing to have like a snappy comeback in an internet debate rather than like being able to make like a nuanced, philosophical statement of 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 like what it means to like fight for human right, freedom yeah. or something you know is that's is, right would, yeah. would you both agree that that's kind of part of the politics of being young and, and political online yes for sure right uh there, it's the uh it's i can't i can't take credit for anything it's it's a it's a it's a left calm phrase online but uh the supermarket of ideology yeah, is what right. uh, what always gets made mm. fun of. You go to the store and pick out which ideology you wanna you want for today, and it's it's a hundred percent true. Um, it's I think it's largely a matter of carrying over the idea of political labels from mainstream political discourse. You're a libertarian, you're a liberal, you're a conservative, and the parties are secondary, and the ideas are bordering on irrelevant. It's a matter of where. Where do you fit in this battle between labels? And so that's when you get people online who, um, like there's neo-Kautskyites now. There's people trying to revive Kautsky just because he has some good articles they like. And so, yeah, sure, why not? We can have Marxism, Leninism, Kautskyism, Mao. It's like, it just, it, it's absurd. And there's obviously the proud tradition in um, Stalinist discourse itself is that it's not Stalinism, it's Marxism, Leninism. And and that's true of Trotskyism in a way, too. It's not Trotskyism, it's Bolshevism, Leninism. And it's just like, it's adding names to this list of which uh, people you worship and uncritically accept. It's terrible, but how do you how do you break out of that in an environment like online where, like you say, everything's about having a snappy comeback. It's about teaming up on people and making fun of them. You have to know who's the in-group and who's the out-group. And uh, truth be told, I've on Twitter, um, multiple times. I, I wouldn't go out of my way to call myself such, but I've kind of fallen in with the left communists on Twitter just because if I don't, they'll make fun of me the way that they do the Stalinists. And by adopting that label, even when I present humanist ideas, it flies under the radar. It's okay. And it's so absolutely just ass-backward absurd, but that's how it is. And um, I, I don't know what to do about it, but it's... Well, let's transition to talking about what led both of you to become disillusioned with these tanky politics. Was it like a gradual disillusionment? Was there a particular precipitating event? Did you you know, finally read the right book or talk to the right person? Um, I guess for me, it, it was a very, it, it was a pretty gradual disillusionment um, because I was never too fully invested into the idea of Stalinism. I 
was so more comfortable, you know, thinking about alternatives. And I, I wanted to think outside the box. And it was because I was looking for kind of that logical reasoning to back it up. I So over time, I became more aware of the fact that, oh, well, this is actually completely false. And it was just over time, the, the comforting phrases of, oh, that's just bourgeoisie propaganda, or, oh, well, they were self-critical. It's just over time, that just didn't really cut it for me. And I was kind of realizing that, okay, well, this is actually really dumb. And this is not a great thing you should defend. This is actually a horrific regime. And then I just, over time, I became so disillusioned with it, and it just was not working out for me anymore. So I really started looking for alternatives and other reasoning. I actually have this friend who is very well-read on, Mar and like, really, he, he was very well-read on Marxism, and then he started recommending me all of these works. Like, he actually recommended me uh, your blog, Brendan, um, The Capitalism 101, which was actually a very important tool that helped me fully, like, understand capital. He recommended me the MHI in general. Uh, he recommended me Andrew Kleiman's works. He recommended me Raya Dunyevskaya. And then from there, I kind of independently tried to further understand Marx's philosophy. And, and I read Raya, and it was something that was very, very comprehensive and concrete to me. And I by then completely broke away from the, uh, the notion that Stalinism was at all something good and was at all something that could be a bastion of revolution uh, rather than, you know, its gravedigger. And really, to be quite frank, to sum it up, what got me away from from that kind of established idea of what Marxism was, that it was Stalinism, was really reading Marx and trying to understand Marx, actually. Hey, before we continue this great conversation, we're going to take just a moment for, I guess, what's our version of station identification. Here is Angela Clard reading our Who We Are statement. Hello, this is Angela Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. 
MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. Yeah, I mean, to me, this it just strikes me listening to you and, and, and to Logan that this is the core of the problem, is that this reaction against capitalism is very, you know, immediate, instinctual, uh, first negativity. It's just, I'm opposed to the main dominant thing that there is. But it's still being defined by that. Uh, and it's not reflective and you're not, uh, not, I don't mean you, I mean the, the, these people that you're talking about, they're not um, moving on from that initial reaction of, you know, just, just opposing. And so they're still letting the terms of the debate be defined by, you know, what they grew up with. Um, so I, what I want to know is, have you tried to get this idea through to people? Uh, and if so, what's the reaction? Or haven't you tried what you think the reaction would be to say to folks, you know, look, you know, you're opposed to what is, that's good, but why assume that, you know, the, the mirror image of that is, is the way to go, you know, maybe we can do better, you know, and maybe, maybe you can think through things for yourself instead of just taking sides in what's being given to you. It's really astonishing how comforted a lot of these people are with just that mere anti-capitalism, anti-imperialism notion. It's just they're so caught up in that and the fact that it's against America, it's against imperialism, like, oh, it's anti-capitalist, anti-imperialism. They're so caught up in that that they don't really realize what it's for. And this is something that Marx, Lenin, Luxembourg, uh, Raya have all been doing their entire lives. It's not just a matter of being anti-capitalist. It's a matter of, well, yeah, but what is being anti-capitalist for? Because within the, the uh, within this negativity comes out a new positive beginning and a new idea of what comes after. And that is the most important part of the dialectical understanding. And that is the really, really the central to that kind of understanding of Marxist revolution. And once I became more familiar with that, it kind of made much more sense to me. And it's something that I have been able to get across to a lot of people. But then there are many who are still very stubborn and pig-headed about it because a lot of the hardcore Stalinists are just so used to that. But it's so easy to romanticize activism and doing stuff itself, which a lot of tankies tend to spout. Like, oh, oh well, the, the Maoists, they have done stuff, and oh, the Che Guevara, he has done stuff before. They made these regimes. But they never came up with... They, they never really universalized and a kind of alternative. They still maintained, they, they, they still existed, these regimes, within the capitalist frameworks. These They existed as these horrific state capitalist regimes that were oftentimes more exploitative than what we're currently seeing. But the fact that they did anything alone just suffices to them. And because they did something, therefore it's fine. 
uh, forget the, uh, the an, uh, like an alternative that completely breaks away and transforms our society from and like transforms our society. It's just that they did something and that just satisfies them. You know, I couldn't agree with you more, of course. Um, and I would definitely say that uh, bringing out uh, the importance of absolute negativity uh, and making it concrete politically for our age, as Ray Dunyevskaya uh, did, that is doing something. I don't think there's an emphasis in Stalinist theory on the importance of working out new beginnings, because for them, what a new beginning it would mean has already been worked out in history from their perspective. All a new beginning means for them is transferring property to the state and making that state democratic. Stalinists genuinely do think that the USSR was a democratic state, and because right. it was a democratic state and the property was owned by the state, therefore everyone owned the property. It's socialism, guys. And so there's no need in their mind to work out this question any further. It's all a matter of tactics. It's all a matter of how do we get state power? Because once we do that, it's easy. It's obvious. And in, if you don't understand that that's not what socialism is, that question of what a new beginning is and what it means to work that out, it does not strike you as existing. It's not a question. Why bother with it? We already have an idea. We already we already know. Yeah. And that's where I think what needs to be emphasized right now more than anything else is just distinguishing what socialism is from a Marxist perspective from what it has meant historically. Right, and we just, we need to reclaim the, like, the notion of an, a liberatory socialism and really what it means. And we, we just, we need to reclaim that. That's one of the most fundamental tasks, I agree with Logan entirely, that we need to work out for this day and age. And, and this is where we have to blame the other side of uh, bourgeois society, you know, the other pole of capital, because mm -hmm. they've done everything in their power to make the issue, you know, the form of state property or, excuse me, you know, state property versus private property, right? right? Without, it, without right. any real social human content to it. So people move in opposition to, you know, the ideology of official society really quickly, smoothly, and easily over to Stalinism. The, the reason that can happen is, you know, both sides are telling us it's only a question of, you know, the form of property. Well, I think both of you got a lot of ideas from reading Marx from yourself, and I think that's key to understanding what's so different um, about Marxism from from these state capitalist societies, and that uh, that's what the youth should be reading and studying and listening to on on the internet is um, is Marx himself. One thing I wanted to ask about, even uh, more horrible than just um, uh, accepting what you find on the internet and, and not looking around for something better, 
could it be that some of the youth are attracted to Stalinism because they actually like authoritarianism, that they think that that's the best way to implement a, quote, left society and they'll be able to punish their enemies and impose their vision of what should be on people? I, 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 some people have suggested this and it makes my hair curl, but you are in touch with a lot of youth, so I wonder what you think about that. <clears throat> I think it's less about authoritarianism and the fetishization of power and authority. And it is bloodlust. It is wanting to get revenge. Yeah. Which I, I, like a lot of them will, they'll turn to, um, uh, angles on authority as justification for, um, their (laughs) own absolute insanity, which, beyond just being a completely uncharitable and ridiculous interpretation of on authority completely contradicts everything Marx ever wrote about the Paris commune, for example, they, the, uh, the commune made a big example out of bringing the guillotines out into the public square and burning them, which is something that Marx comments on and celebrates because revolutionary <laughs> violence and terror, at least in and of itself is not a virtue Radicalism is not measured by how many people you kill. Radicalism is to grasp the root of the matter and to understand what needs to be done to fix the world as it is. It's not about how many people you can put into the gulags. And that's all the time we have today on Radio Free Humanity. James and Logan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, of course. It's our pleasure. Thank you also to Angela Clark for being with us. Radio Free Humanity is produced by Marxist Humanist Initiative. If you want to hear more episodes, please go to marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can find us on SoundCloud and all sorts of other podcast platforms. Please do leave a comment, subscribe, and all those other good things.